Okay, um, I think we said we would speak about uh, transplant, transplantation, right? Uh, from the perspective of the problems of living donors. Dr. Sanders, come to The uh, last week we spoke about um, problems, uh, halakhic problems with the non-living donors in terms of autopsies uh, taking organs from non-living donors and we went through a lot of issues there which organs exactly what the issues are and we also discussed the question of brain death or brainstem death let's look at some of the issues two issues we didn't cover were the factors relating to the living donor the lachic issues and also we didn't look and I hope all the time to look at the question of the recipient. We didn't look at the recipient. Whether the recipient is getting an organ from a living donor or a non-living donor, there are unique issues looking at when you look at the recipient, such as during the time that the recipient's heart is removed, for example, is he considered to be alive? It's a fascinating question, right? While the heart is being removed from the body, before the new heart has been put in, what exactly is the status? There are all sorts of fascinating questions about the recipient as well. Let's begin by looking at some of the questions um, relating to the donors who are alive and see if we can try to clarify that issue. Please, let me ask you to hold the questions. Give me a chance to try to build you a picture of some of the issues. I'd like to try to emphasize the issue, some of the issues that are left, perhaps less well-known, some of the more uh, some fascinating issues here that revolve around the, the living donor. You know that today... Uh, I tried to point out last week, transplantation of many organs, uh, an ever-increasing range of organs is being undertaken. In terms of living donors, organs that are often used are <coughs> classically kidneys. I mean, kidney transplantation today, living donor kidney transplant is a very widespread um, modality with excellent five-year survival rates. Today, heart transplantation, as you know, although it gives, um, it gives unique halakhic problems, and there we're talking about non-living donors, but in terms of uniquely, the unique uh, situation of living donors, you have things like kidneys, you have livers, or rather a lobe of a liver. Um, I was at uh, Mount Sinai Hospital in New York a few months ago, actually uh, giving a presentation on some of this material, and they had had just a, f- a couple of weeks before that a very unfortunate episode where a man in his 50s had given a lobe of his liver to his brother. Actually, the recipient was a doctor, and... Um, his brother had given him a couple of years difference in age. His brother had given him a lobe of a liver, and he died of overwhelming infection just a few days after the, 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 tran- the, 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 the transplant. Um, <coughs> the, the donor <coughs> died, and um, there was a tremendous, you know, it was very uh, going through a lot of soul searching about the program at the time. Very unfortunate event. Normally, the risk to the donor is uh, small, very small. It's a significant risk, but it's a small risk. Other organs are also given by living by living donors. Obviously, everyone's aware of blood transfusion, and everyone's aware of marrow, marrow that's donated. But there are others as well. Until not long ago, there was a very active lung transplant program from living donors. Today, <coughs> I had the actual uh, the privilege of speaking to, once I had to present some of this um, halakhic material in St. Louis at Washington University, and uh, one of the people in the audience happened to be a certain Dr. Joel Cooper, who's a, one of the world's leading lung transplant surgeons. Actually, he happens to be Jewish. I think he's from Toronto originally. And he was able to, um, I was able to get updated on some of the fascinating technical aspects of lung transplantation surgery. Today, the fashion is not to use whole lungs from a donor because the morbidity and mortality to the donor is so severe that it is, um, 
if that's fallen out of favor, and also because today you can use cadaver lungs, uh, in fact, you can actually use lungs with the correct halachic definition of death. You know, you don't have to have a brainstem death, you can have an, a, a normally defined cardiorespiratory death. And then, I actually asked uh, Professor Cooper about the the problem of waiting after death has ensued before you take your lung, and he actually told me that in lung transplant surgery, what's more important is the ischemic time. That means the time that the organ is not properly perfused before death. After death is, relatively speaking, they can afford to wait a certain amount of time, and therefore lungs can be used. Today, the lung transplantation program using living donors, today do use lobes of lungs, but to take a whole lung from somebody and leave them with one side of the chest without a lung entirely, the, the trauma is, is, is great, and uh, that probably reaches into a halachic category of risk that, is, um, that is, is severe enough that it would have different halachic ramifications, I'll try to explain that. So these are some of the, these are some of the issues. Now, how do we approach the, the question? Let's take an example. Let's take as an example the person <coughs> who's considering giving a kidney, <coughs> let's say to save, to save a life, someone in their family perhaps, what are the considerations that are due? Incidentally, you know they no longer only accept uh, living-related donors. You know that one of the criteria in donation is that they should be as good as possible an antigenic match. That means, and often, obviously, you will get a better antigenic match from closely related, closely from siblings and closely related people. Usually, the people who want to give a kidney are people in the family, right? It's usually, it's, it's classically, let's say, a child who is. Um, in kidney failure, it's a mother who will classically or typically give a kidney. In husband-wife situations, in husband-wife situations, um, sometimes, of course, you get the kind of relationship where the spouse will be very willing to give a kidney. Sometimes, in fact, the, sc- the spouse has been the cause of the problem. You know, they're the reason the person got the high blood pressure in the first place, and uh, you know, not about to give a kidney. But um, it often is. It was a case. I remember a case in Israel, actually, a very interesting case where a person was a uh, woman, a 70-year-old woman was in kidney failure, and her 40-year-old son wanted to give a kidney. Now, giving a kidney is permitted halakhically, and I'll try and explain the parameters, but this was an unusual case. The mother was in kidney failure, and she was 70. The son was 40, young and healthy, wanted to give his kidney. He, the mother did not want the kidney, but he wanted to insist on his mother getting his kidney to save her life. He went to Rav Shach, and Rav Shach told him not to give his kidney. They asked Rav Shach, why not? And he said, it's not normal. It's not normal. It's not normal. Maybe yes, very broad shoulders to say that sort of thing, but often it is a living, a living related donor. Now the problem with that, of course, is there's a, often a shortage of uh, donor donors available. <coughs> Many steps have been taken to increase the supply of donors. One of the things that's commonly done today, and a lot of research you'll see papers published on this all the time, is using unrelated donors, where the figures are very good today. There may be 10% less five-year survival than, than related donors or perfectly matched HLA um, uh, t- uh, types, but the results are still very good. A new technique that's just been, um, become popular in America, actually there's a report on this in the New England Journal a few weeks ago, is a swapped matched transplant. You know what they do? They find two people who would like to give a kidney to each other but do not match. For example, let's say there's a family in which a child, a child needs a kidney and the parent is willing to give the kidney but unfortunately does not match. What do they do? They look for another pair somewhere else in the country of siblings or parent and child where they also would like to give a kidney from one to the other, also do not match, but cross-match. That means, you understand? There's big A, little A, right? Mother, mother A and her little son A. There's big mother B and little, little B. Okay? Big A doesn't match little A and big B doesn't match little B. But big A matches little B and big B matches little A. 
And in a country like America, you can find that sort of combination. So what they do is they'll take big A's kidney for little B on condition that big B promises his kidney for little A. Do you get it? Or vice versa, whatever, you know. You, you know what I mean. My maths isn't that good. Anyway, the point is that, and the way they do it is, they do it under a promissory system where the commitment is ensured by the fact that they insist on both donor operations taking place at the same time so that the second pair cannot back out. In other words, yeah, they'll, they'll travel to, they'll travel to the, 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 the center where the, the required center, they'll remove the kidney from the one, and that kidney will be transported to the center of the recipient of the other pair, and they'll insist that they won't start the operation until the other team are ready as well. So that no one can then back out after their child has been given a kidney from another donor and then, and then opt out. Right? So they both done at the same time. That is expanding the pool of donors by finding people who are better related antigenically, although they may not be in the same, in the same families. Um, that's one of the techniques that's been used. Um, what, are the, what are the lachic issues? And, and, uh, t- so it's like this. First of all, is it permitted? Let's take the first issue. Is it permitted to give a kidney in the first place? Somebody wants to give a kidney to a sibling or somebody in the family or whoever it is while they're alive. Are you allowed to give a kidney? The first consideration here, <coughs> you really can separate this into two things. One is, <coughs> is it permitted <coughs> or in fact perhaps is it obliged to give a limb to save a life? An organ, a limb, a faculty. In this case you're talking about a kidney, an organ of the body. Is it obliged to give a limb to save a life? Right. Secondly, is it permitted to endanger oneself to save a life? There are two issues when you give a kidney. There's the loss of the organ. That's an that's a issue in its own right. And then there's the danger to the one who's giving the, the organ. Right? There are, two, there are two separable issues here. There is in the halachic responsa a case of a man who... The question of giving a hand to save a life. Right? Giving a hand. And I'm not, I'm not going to go now... We'll separate the issues of giving the organ and the danger. That was a case of a Jew who lived in Turkey who was accused of stealing by the Sultan and sentenced... You know, in a Muslim country, the sentence for stealing is... Right? Top of the hand. So he was sentenced to have his hand cut off and he managed to escape. He fled to Egypt. He fled to Egypt. But the Sultan in Turkey captured another Jew, imprisoned him, and sent a message to the Jew in Egypt saying, if you refuse to come home, I'll kill him. If you come home, I'll release him and get, cut your hand off. And this Jew wanted to know what was his obligation. Was he obliged to return to Turkey and lose his hand to save another Jew's life? Or would he be permitted to remain in Egypt passively, do nothing, another Jew would die? He went to ask the Radbaz, the Rabdavid ben Zimri, one of the great halachic authorities in the world, and in fact we know this because it's in one of his famous responsa. And he has a wonderful, very, very fascinating ruling uh, going through very interesting halachic reasoning. He actually uses novel, <coughs> very interesting and novel reasoning. I'm not going to go into it now. But he comes to the conclusion that if the man would go and sacrifice his hand, go home and sacrifice his hand in order to save a life, it would be an incredible act of chesed, a tremendous mitzvah, but not obligatory. Okay? He'd be allowed to, but not be obliged. Now, involved in this is also the question not only of living without an organ, because you've donated it, but also the danger. Right? What is the danger of giving a kidney? How great is the danger and how do we approach it? Well, <coughs> very briefly, I'm not going to go into this in detail, I'm going to measure very briefly in passing, because I think when we once discussed cosmetic surgery, we went into a full analysis of the of risk profiles. So all I'm going to do is just give you a, ske- a thumbnail sketch here so that we can apply it to our situation, and that is that Risk can be stratified very, very broadly, again, without details, into three categories. Negligible type of risk is the risk that people every day accept. What a society accepts as normal every day 
has a certain halachic category, I'm not going to now go into the parameters, that enable you to do such things without due concern to the risk. Okay? Then there's the high-risk category, which you're not allowed to do, not even to save a life. Actually, that itself is an argument in the Talmud, whether you can undertake a high-risk situation to certainly save a life that would die, certainly die otherwise. They have an argument here between the Talmud, Yerushalmi and Babli, the Jerusalem Babylonian Talmud. We rule according to the Babylonian that you may not undertake a very high risk to save a life. The Jerusalem Talmud says you're obliged to undertake a risk to save a life. We rule, generally speaking, that you should not undertake a very high risk in order to save a life. So, very briefly, you have the negligible risk, you're obliged to do that. Medically, probably an example of that here would be giving blood. You cannot refuse to give blood on the grounds that, on any grounds, it's uncomfortable, it's, uh, you know, you, you, to, to save a life, you definitely would be transgressing the mitzvah of standing idly by while someone is dying, and you'd have to give blood. Marrow is a bit more, a bit more complex, because giving bone marrow, giving bone marrow, among other things, a general anesthetic. Quite a lot of marrow is taken. And general anesthesia poses a different kind of a risk profile. Do you know what the risk is of general anesthesia? The risk of general anesthetic is about 1 in 20 or 30 or 40,000. Just, just hold the question if you don't mind. I'll stop for questions after this. The risk of dying of, of an elective, cold, planned general anesthetic is about 1 in, in the best hands, about 1 in 40,000 or perhaps even a little bit less than that. That is a very low risk, but it's certainly a significant risk. No, no doctor, no sensible doctor sends a person for general anesthetic if they can get away without it, generally, and therefore, <coughs> therefore, that's an issue. So, marrow is a bit more complex. But, in terms of, in terms of um, the risk of a kidney, the third category of risk is the middle category. What's negligible risk you have to undertake to save a life, what's high risk you, 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 you uh, are not obliged to, and probably according to the general ruling you should not. The middle range risk is the kind of thing where it's risky enough that you don't have to, but safe enough that you may. Okay? You see, the general category of that sort of risk is you can undertake things that are more than negligibly risky if there's a good reason. The classic good reason is earning a living. You can do things that have got a measurable risk more than normal to earn a living, provided they're not high risk. So, so in other words, the middle risk category is a thing that under certain circumstances you can do. Now, to save a life is certainly considered a good reason. And therefore, giving a kidney, what is the risk of giving a kidney? It's very hard to quantify. Giving the risk of a kidney is a question of surgical accident, of post-surgical infection, um, of the lifetime actuarial risk of what it is to live with only one kidney. If the person later, many years later, gets injured in the previous, in the remaining kidney, there's a lot of issues here. It's very hard to come up with a lifelong, lifetime figure, sort of actuarial type figure, but everybody agrees that is a very low risk. Okay? The, the, the danger that somebody will die because they once gave a kidney to somebody else is very, very low. What percentage? Very hard to say, but everyone agrees that it's low. But it's certainly not negligible. Okay? It's certainly not, at least when I say certainly, I mean there could be argument about that. Some people might say it's so low that it could be. But the point is that the general attitude here, halakhically, <coughs> is that this, in the, this is in the range where it is safe enough that you may... But, but risky enough that you don't have to, okay? And therefore, the status of giving a kidney today, halakhically, is that it's perfectly acceptable, but you cannot coerce in any way a person to give a kidney. Now, that immediately opens one of the most difficult areas in kidney donation. And that is, and I'm sure you can see what it is, if giving a kidney is permissible but not obligatory, you face the enormously difficult psychological problem Okay, of the donor having to give permission in circumstances where, for example, they may not wish to. There's two issues. One is they have to go through an agonizing process of decision of having to give a kidney, torn between the options of wanting to save a life of someone in their family and yet being afraid of the, of the risk of giving a kidney. That's the first issue. 
The second issue, and much more difficult issue, is what happens when the person would rather not give the kidney, but the family pressurized them? This is a classic problem that all kidney transplant programs have to deal with, where there's, a, there's a, almost, almost, um, it's almost unavoidable that the family, imagine parents who've got a young child dying of kidney failure when another child matches. It's almost unavoidable that the parents will put pressure on the child who could give a kidney, knowing that the risk is very small, and knowing that the other child will die anyway. What's the halakhic, what's the halakhic attitude towards trying to push someone to do something that, that, that yeah, how do you approach that? I'll give you an example. In Israel, not that long ago, there was a family, I actually heard this from the rabbi involved, one of the leading authorities in this, <coughs> in this particular area, happens to be Rav Zilberstein, he's Rabbi Lovshi's son-in-law. He dealt with a family where there was a boy, I think he was four years old when the story began, who was in kidney failure. They transplanted a kidney, if I'm not mistaken, from a sibling, and it was rejected. They transplanted a second kidney from his mother, it was rejected again. They transplanted a third kidney from someone else in the family, and it was rejected. And the surgeons were prepared to try a fourth transplant. Okay, it's an unprecedented thing. They were prepared to try a fourth transplant because the child's risk of yeah, demise was so great. It, it, many, many long years of dialysis is not a, not a pleasant option. It's not without risks by any means. And um, not only unpleasant and <coughs> difficult people with that go through metabolic changes, they go through psychiatric changes in long-term dialysis. It's not a simple matter. It has, it has significant morbidity and mortality. And therefore... They, they, they felt that their only real hope was another transplant. Now, the problem was that the person whose kidney they wanted to use was his 18-year-old sister. Okay? The parents came to the rabbi with an amazing, amazing question. They came and they said like this, How strongly are we allowed to pressure our daughter to give a kidney? If we beg her, if we pressurize her to give a kidney, are we transgressing one of the Ten Commandments? Which of the Ten Commandments would you transgress when you try to convince someone to do something that you get them to agree to technically, but emotionally unwillingly. Coveting. You are transgressing the tenth of the Ten Commandments. There's different ways of interpreting that mitzvah. It's got different applications. But very briefly, one of the meanings is, can you see that you're not guilty of stealing? If you, if you, if you pressurize somebody to do something which they technically, legally agree to, even though emotionally they're unwilling, there's no way you can be accused of technical stealing, right? Because they gave it. However, you are transgressing coveting. If I come to your house and I say, hmm, I like that object over there, I'd like you to, to give it to me. And you say, no, no, it's got sentimental value, and I'm not... And you say, look, I'll pay you, and I'll pay you very well, and you keep refusing. Finally, I so squeeze you and embarrass you and make you feel so awkward in front of your guests and so forth that eventually you give it to me, or you sell it to me for that matter. If you hand that thing over legally, but emotionally, unwillingly, I have transgressed the Tenth of the Ten Commandments, Loisachma, not coveting. Okay? There's more to the mitzvah than that, of course, but that's, that's one of its aspects. So they came to the rabbi and they said like this, if we ask our daughter to give her kidney, and we, yeah, do you understand the problem? And she agrees because there's pressure on her, so she technically agrees, but emotionally she's unwilling, okay, are we transgressing this commandment? It's a very, very awful question to have to, to, have to ask and to have to deal with. <coughs> Actually, one of the details here is interesting, and that is that this particular rabbi, I'll just tell you an interesting story, <coughs> He, I know that he was once himself involved in a situation involving this mitzvah, a very interesting situation. I'll tell you the story briefly. He was standing in a shop in B'nai Brak where they sell silver, expensive silver, when a very senior-ranking Israeli army officer walked in, in full uniform, with his wife, and a secular, talking about Chiloni, right, completely secular individual, and this man 
and his wife, they chose an expensive silver item, was either 2,000 shekels or dollars, whatever it was. And after they were happy with what they had chosen, the officer said to the man in the store, I'll give you 1,500. You know, Middle East, right? You, you know, you, you, that's how you buy things. So the fellow said, fine. And the man wrote out his check and wrapped up the object and left. As he arrived at the door, this particular rabbi stood in his way. Now, you've got to picture this classic Israeli confrontation, right? You have here this very senior-ranking Israeli army officer, yeah, full uniform, completely secular, you know, which in Israel often means, unfortunately, not that favorably disposed, shall we say, towards this sort of religious camp. And standing in his way is a very religious-looking gentleman, talking about a long black frock and long silver payers, and, you know, the whole, I mean, no question which segment of the population you know, he represented. And he stood in this soldier's way, and he said to him in Hebrew, you just transgressed one of the Ten Commandments. So this officer said to him, what are you, what are you talking about? He said, do you know why he gave you a discount? He gave you a discount that he would not ordinarily have given, because he was overawed by your rank, and you, you know, in, in Israel, very senior military personnel often end up in the political sphere. That's a fact. Maybe one day he'll be the minister of tax or finance or who knows what. And you'll, you know, who knows? You don't want to start problems with anybody in any official position. And therefore, because of your rank and your, your position, he gave you a discount yeah, that he would not ordinarily have given. And I, that is transgressing. Do you know what happened? The soldier stood there and thought about it for a few minutes. He turned around, he went back to the counter and he said to the man, I want to give you another 500. The fellow said, listen, you can forget about it. I wrote out a receipt. You can leave. He took out his checkbook. He wrote out another 500 and he paid and left. And I'm not sure which of those two people to respect more. The rabbi, for sizing up this character who's completely untrained from a Torah perspective, but he saw that he was sensitive. Or the secular Jew who could relate to such an issue and want to be clean, right, and not have a feeling that he pulled rake in any way. I mean, it's a tremendous credit to the Jewish people, yeah? Anyway, so when they came to ask him about the girl... He answered them that there's no problem with um, coercion, with like with Lois uh, When you ask someone to give an organ to save a life, that is not coveting. Coveting is when you have a personal avaricious desire for somebody to give you something that you want. When you ask somebody to give an organ to save a life, that's not a problem. And therefore, he ruled that there would be no issue if the parents would ask the daughter. In fact, what happened was, the parents said to their 18-year-old daughter, if you give your kidney to your brother, we'll give you our apartment. Okay? The concern was, the reason was, the concern was, they were worried that this 18-year-old girl, having given a kidney, might be a little less marriageable, yes, than she might have been otherwise. But if she comes along with a nice big apartment, that will offset, yes, whichever, whichever young man is considering marrying her, that will offset the kidney, okay? Um, actually, it's a serious issue. In Kabbalistic writing, the kidneys are connected to sexual function, and particularly to sensual or sexual desire. And therefore, this is a direct marital issue. It isn't only a, at least Kabbalistically, it isn't only a health issue, it's also a direct marital issue. And therefore, that is what the parents said. This raises another issue, which I'm not going to get into now, unless we have time, and that is the question of paying. Here, the parents, in effect, were paying for the, for the kidney, right? They were offering her a consideration, namely the apartment for giving kidney. Is it permitted in Jewish law, since we're speaking about living donors, can you pay a donor for his organ? Let's just mention it briefly. I won't go into detail. Can you pay for an organ? Well, the answer is this. There's no hardcore prohibition. In other words, there's no specific prohibition in the Torah (coughs) paying for an organ. It's dangerous, and many ethical authorities throughout the world have ruled that it's to be very seriously discouraged or outlawed because you can know what it can lead to. In fact, in many third world situations, poverty-stricken circumstances, people do sell their organs, okay? Unfortunately, even their children sometimes, if you know about this. 
but um, certainly selling organs because they can get a lot of money and uh, that, the kind of money certainly means more to them than the organs. That may be very dangerous. But there's no specific hardcore type of prohibition. One Allahic authority has spoken about this and he came to the conclusion that paying for an organ, paying for an organ in Jewish law would probably be prohibited if the person, if the donor being paid is under 20 years of age. And the reason is that, <coughs> basically the reason is like this, to give consent for an organ, to give consent for an organ, you need to be bar mitzvah, right? You need to be 13 if you're a boy, 12 if you're a girl. However, certain types of maturity are only gained at age 20. One, for example, is the Talmud says that children's hearts are close to money. Children, yeah, have an unbalanced sense of what money means. Some of us, you know, have trouble outgrowing that. But, um, that is what it is, and therefore, you have to be 20 to be mature enough to be considered to make an objective judgment. When you're 14 and someone offers you 20,000 pounds for your kidney, 20,000 pounds is a lot of chewing gum or cocaine or whatever they, whatever they buy these days. I don't know what they buy these days when they're 14, but whatever it is, 10,000 pounds is 20,000, a lot of it. And therefore, um, that would be considered perhaps unduly coercive. However, halakhically, if a person's 13 and there's no consideration being given then you would be allowed to... A mature 13-year-old, yeah, who understands exactly what's going, etc., then you would be allowed to accept their organ. What happens when you want an organ from a younger child is a fascinating issue. I'll come back to that. I just don't want to break the, the theme. So let, let, allow me to come back to that. Remind me if I don't. Let's go back to our main theme of the question of risk. So, if the, if the category of risk is moderate, which means that the person may, you get this problem of coercion. Halakhically, we're not talking about loisachmaid, and therefore, and therefore, you are faced with this with with the situation of having someone whose kidney perhaps matches. They may not wish to, and there's pressure from the family. How do you handle that situation? Well, one of the things that's done, one of the things that's done, is <coughs> a solution was was uh, devised by a certain rabbi, as it happens in the Eastern United States, and that that suggestion is now used in kidney transplant programs. In fact, I was in Colombia where they told me that they actually use this, um, they actually use this, uh, um, this option. And what they do is, they, um, they call in the members of the family uh, and interview them. When they interview the member of the family whose kidney matches, okay, in complete privacy with no one else present, the surgical team says to the person who's a potential donor, your kidney matches. If you agree, we'll use your kidney. If you refuse, we'll publish falsely that your kidney did not match. We will lie and we'll put in the record that you were not available as a match. Which means that no one in your family will ever know that you could have. You will have to deal with the problem. That we can't take off you. You will have to have your sleepless nights going through this decision-making process about whether you wish to give up your kidney. But at least we'll take the heat off you of your family pressurizing you okay, and complicating the situation that way. This raises the question of whether you're allowed to lie for this type of a benefit. And it's possible that there's room for this that there's room for this, and that is the procedure. No one is supposed to know whether the, uh, an individual who did not give permission really is, is going to be looked at with the accusing eyes of the dying sibling, you know, and you could have saved my life and didn't. That is what will be taken off of the individual. That is one, that is one option that, 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 that is used. But this is a serious issue. Is the, is the, um, a, a delicate situation requires sensitive counselling of the individual and the family, so that you can uh, facilitate this, um, this process. There's also the question, let, let's come back briefly to the question of age. When a person's underage and you want a kidney, let's say you have a person in a family, and there's a sibling who is underage, and you could use their kidney 
to save a life. The problem is underage you cannot give consent, right? In Jewish law, certainly under Bar Mitzvah. And in secular law, there's a legal age. Whatever it is, what, uh, what age in this country for that sort of thing? Any idea? Age for giving consent for things like an organ to be given? 16, something like that. Different countries, different states have their own laws. What happens if the person is beneath that age? Well, <coughs> there was a case in America, this must be already more than 10 years ago, where a 4-year-old boy was in kidney failure and his 11-year-old sister matched. Now the problem is that in the, in the United States, uh, 11 years old, in all states, as far as I'm aware, is too young for a person to give meaningful consent. Now if a person can give cons- cannot give consent, no one else can give consent for them. Parents can only give consent for something for a child, for the child's benefit. But they can't give consent for a child's harm for someone else's benefit. There's no law like that, right? Um, in, in South Africa, and I'm sure it's the same here, a hospital superintendent can sign an emergency permission for surgery or things like that, but only where the patient needs the surgery. That means if someone's unconscious and you can't contact a family. So there's a, a magistrate or even a hospital superintendent can sign permission for an emergency operation, but that's because the patient needs the operation. But nobody's empowered to sign consent for somebody to have a dangerous procedure for someone else's benefit. That only the individual themselves can decide. And if they're not of legal age, you cannot do this. This case came to court in the United States, and as you would imagine, the court ruled that the surgeons could not, in fact, take the kidney. It was then heard on appeal. Okay? The case went to appeal. The, surgical, the surgeons brought expert psychiatric testimony to testify that if the girl didn't give her kidney, the psychiatric trauma she was likely to suffer later, growing up and knowing that her brother had died because she hadn't given a kidney and she could have, would be a greater risk to her than the risk of giving a kidney. And on the basis of that calculation, the court authorized giving the kidney. Jewish law, I'm sure, I don't know of a case like that, that had been ever tested, but I don't think that would hold in a Jewish court, okay? First of all, I doubt the psychiatric, I mean, it sounds far-fetched to me that uh, how much psychiatric trauma will there be when somebody knows that they didn't do something that in fact they wouldn't really give the option to, I don't know. But anyway, that, that's a case on record. Another fascinating version of that type of case is a case that occurred in a Jewish situation, and again, I'm not sure how it was resolved, but I'll tell you the case. It was also heard legally. The case was as follows. It was a case of a, um, a, case of a mentally abnormal adult, okay, who was cared for very lovingly by a younger individual. By all accounts, all professional assessments agreed that he was only kept alive, kept alive only by the attention of this young caregiver, because he was in need of extreme care, and the fear was that if he wasn't cared for, he'd hurt himself, he might get pressure, so whatever he'd get, and therefore, he depended for his life on this young caregiver. Well, you can imagine what happened. The young caregiver went into kidney failure, and needed a kidney transplant, and it turned out that the mentally abnormal person that he took care of matched perfectly. Now, they couldn't get consent from him to give his kidney to give the younger person, because he was mentally incompetent. So the case went to court, and they argued as follows. The reason we should take his kidney to save the life of the younger fellow is because it's actually life-saving for him. Because by giving the kidney to the caregiver, keeping him alive, he will keep him alive. Okay, that's a fascinating argument. What actually happened, I don't know. And what the Jewish resolution of that will be, I also don't know. But anyway, the point is, these cases have to be decided on a, on a one-time basis. And these are some of the... These are some of the considerations when it comes to, to giving a, a, an organ. So, we've covered the issue of risk. Which organs are beyond the pale, let's say, of risk where you probably should not give an organ. Kid, organs like kidneys where you certainly can. Um, lobes of livers, probably. That sort of thing. 
certainly can. That raises again this whole problem of choice, which we've discussed, and various other, other issues. Let me, let me see if there are any questions on these immediate issues, and if there are, I'll deal with them, and then I'd like to say a few words about the recipient. Yeah, please. Okay, fine. Yep. Aphoresis. Sure, yeah. The, 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 when you minimize the risks to the donor beyond a certain point, then really there's no justification for saying, I'm not willing to, I'm not willing to do this to save a life. That's a good question. The answer is, yeah. The answer is like this. The Jewish obligation to save a life Okay, is when there's a specific life that needs saving. That means if there's somebody right now who needs it, whether he's in this room or another room or another, that doesn't matter. If there's somebody alive now, okay, I don't have to know his name, but he has to be what we call a chayle lefaneinu, somebody present, then, and by the way, it doesn't even have to be certain that his life's in danger, and it doesn't even have to be certain that we'll save him. As long as there's a person who may be in danger, okay, who may be saved, you're obliged to get involved. Okay? But for research that will save lives in the long run, on a statistical sort of research type of basis, there's no immediate obligation. Okay? And therefore, yes, if you're aware of someone, or there is somebody who needs your, your involvement, then once they... Incidentally, when we say there doesn't have to be a definite danger, this is an important issue, what, what do we mean by that? Somebody who's got a cold, right, might get pneumonia. How far do you go? Can you break Shabbat for somebody who's got like a bit of flu? Some people with flu get, get pneumonia, right? Do you understand the problem? Again... Anything that could be a danger to life, we will break Shabbat. We'll preemptively break Shabbat, right? The question is, the question is, virtually anything could become dangerous. Probably the halachic, um, the way to think about this halachically, probably, is, is what they call the roidef nimtza. That means, is the aggressive element that will, that will endanger the person, is that element here? Um, uh, cold is not a lethally dangerous situation normally. Pneumonia is. Again, if the person's got a cold, you do not have to break Shabbat on the basis of the fact that they might get pneumonia. First of all, that presupposes you can do something about the common cold, which we basically come on. But I mean, if you could, if you could, that's not the issue. But if the person's got pneumonia, even though they may have it mildly, pneumonia occasionally is lethal, okay? And therefore, yes, you could break Shabbat. So we need a person who has a condition that that particular condition is or normally leads to danger. When someone's comatose, because someone's lost their insulin, right? Here you have a diabetic on Shabbos morning. No insulin. They're absolutely fine now. Absolutely fine. In eight hours' time, they'll be comatose. But right now, they're fine. You break Shabbat now. You don't sit around waiting for them to get, you know, blue and gasping and then kind of break Shabbat. You don't do that. You break Shabbat now because they're in already the process that will become dangerous uh, at a particular point in time and you can preemptively uh, do that. Yeah. Yes, please. Relating to what you said earlier about our obligation to save a life even if it's not right in front of us. Yeah. On a wider issue, the programs on TV at the moment about um, children in third world countries who are living on rubbish heaps, sorting through rubbish to make them yeah. who are deafening right. real danger of dying. Right. Where does that leave us in relation to our obligation to them? There's no question that. It's a, I don't know how people sleep at night with that. How, how do the nations of the world sleep at night knowing that the garbage from their country could feed kids who are dying of hunger? I mean, how can I... This is, this is not a transplantation issue, except maybe no, transplanting food and supplies. But of course it's obligation. How can they, how can they do that? The, the question is even more difficult on people in those countries. There's wealthy and poor in the same place, right? where the, the, waste, the waste of one could feed the... 
can free the other. There's a Jewish organization, I don't know if you know about this, there's a Jewish organization started up in a few places, believe it or not, called Sheris HaPlate. <laughs> now that means? Sheris HaPlate is a phrase meaning the remnant of the, the refugees. In a play on words, a very, very crude play on words, they've called it Sheris HaPlate, the remnants of the plate. And what they do is they go to weddings late at night and they cut off all the unused food. You know that most caterers over-cater. They have to, right? A caterer is in tr- trouble if somebody doesn't get a meal. And he can never be exact. So many caterers end up over-catering. Now, in many places, there's a law that you can't use that food subsequently. Once it's been prepared and heated, okay, you can't save it or freeze it again and use it because of infection control rules. Okay? And therefore, the food is absolutely thrown out. There's a Jewish organization that takes trucks to weddings late at night and feeds families in that city okay, with fresh cooked, luxurious meals from weddings, okay, that night or the next morning, okay, so that instead of getting wasted, poor families get fed. Oh, that's fantastic. Anyway, we're off the subject of transplantation. Anything that's... On, yeah? If human beings can survive or live perfectly normally on one kidney... Yeah, why were they given two? Why, why, why were they given two? <laughs> and if you have two kidneys, then why not two hearts or two livers? That's right, that's right, that's right. I think we're going to limit the question to the non-Kabbalistic ones, okay? <laughs> if you don't mind. The reason we have two of each thing is a very deep Kabbalistic issue, but it's going to take us right off transplant, if you don't mind. Incidentally, we do have two of everything. The heart has two sides. All life-sustaining organs are actually duplicated, which is a Kabbalistic principle. The spleen, for example, is not, but it's not life-sustaining. The liver has two lobes. It's a fascinating issue. This will take us off the subject of transplantation. So we'll save that for after midnight. Yeah, anything directly on the subject, yeah. Are there, um, are there any people that are undeserving of uh, organ donation? Yeah, that's a good question. Are there anyone undeserving of, uh, of having their lives saved? I have a personal list of quite a few. <laughs> 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 um, and there's, quite, there's, there's others whom I wouldn't accept an organ from them, you know, either. Uh, yeah, there could be a situation like that. There could be, there could be, yeah. We don't normally make a judgment on the basis of whether a person's a criminal or not. In Jewish law, when a person's already sentenced to death, just before execution, that might be different because he might already be considered halachically dead. There are issues like that. Or a person who's liable to be killed. For example, he's killed someone and he's now exposed, for example, outside a city of refuge when he killed someone accidentally. He's liable to be killed and some even hold it to mitzvah to kill him from the avenger of the family. Okay, we don't have that situation. There are situations where a person has a different life status here. But that wouldn't apply in practice to the transplant situations we see. I'll tell you where it would apply is in privatization. Who gets the kidney first when you've only got one and there's two people who need it, okay? One is uh, <coughs> less likely to benefit, for example, is alcoholic and, and is the kind of person who's less likely in South Africa, unfortunately. In South Africa, in the transplant programs, very often people from rural, in primit- so called primitive rural environments, are put lower on transplant. Uh, protocol triage um, programs not because they're less deserving but they're less likely to benefit because they live far away in a country area and they're less sophisticated um, medically do you understand the chances that they'll do all the sophisticated follow-up that's needed and maintain their immunosuppressive therapy and so on and therefore one of the practical realities is trying to give the transplant to the person who's most likely to to actually use it this raises a lot of emotional issues when you give a kidney to a person uh, liver to a person who's got alcoholic liver damage especially when he carries on drinking after there's a lot of issues that a lot of issues over here. Yeah, any... Let me say a brief word, if I may, <coughs> about, the, um, about the recipient. Very briefly, and we'll, we'll stop with that. 
the recipient of an organ has his own unique, his or her own unique factors. Probably the most dramatic of these is when you talk about a heart. You know that um, our ruling basically at present, the majority of our authorities hold that giving the heart is problematic. Taking the heart from the donor is problematic, and we discussed that last week, the reason being that you need to define death as brainstem death in order to take the heart, and that is a, not a simple matter, halakhically. But other organs are less problematic. However, when you're talking about taking a heart, although we rule that the heart should not be taken, we do not rule that it shouldn't be received. Do, do you hear the problem? Do you hear the issue? In other words, if somebody is available, they need a heart transplant, right? And we can find a heart that has been taken. We will rule that they should not take the heart. But if it is taken, even though it may be improperly taken, we won't reject it. <coughs> or, uh, this is perhaps not the right word. We won't, um, we won't refuse to accept the heart when it is available. That's because we don't have in Jewish law what's known in secular law as an exclusionary principle. Exclusionary principle means when a process began wrongly, then, I'm phrasing it very, very sort of broadly, when something is wrongly begun, then you shouldn't... Yep, let me express it better by an example. Should benefit be had from Nazi experimentation? Once that's already been done, should you use the information in any way? An exclusionary principle would say, taken to its extreme, since it was ill-gotten in the first place, you're not allowed to use it further. If you take a heart, which is forbidden, now the exclusionary principle would say, since you took it improperly, you shouldn't benefit from it later. We do not have an automatic exclusionary principle in Jewish law. Is that clear? That means, if somebody excised a heart improperly, they did it wrong, they didn't know. Some, yeah, yeah, in this country, for example, a heart was harvested. Here's a recipient waiting. They run into the operating theater with a heart, and they say, here it is. I don't have to say, I'm sorry, we're not going to take that heart, because you shouldn't have taken it. If it's here now, we use it. Of course, there's a much broader issue. It may well be fitting to outlaw that on certain occasions to stop people taking things improperly. That's a broad issue. That's not, that's not the immediate issue, okay? It could be at the political level or broad halakhic level. Our leaders, halakhic leaders or the ones involved in these areas might rule that we should perhaps not do that in order not to... And you have principles like that. That's not an exclusionary principle. That's a prevention of further damage. The classic application in Jewish law is when people are captured by terrorists and they are ransoming back those captives to the community. There's a general law in Judaism that you cannot ransom them back for an exorbitant amount. Why? Because they'll capture more people. Do you understand? If you pay an inordinate amount, you're encouraging them to do the same thing again. So although you may save these lives, you're ultimately endangering more. Same applies to a safer Torah. If a safer Torah, I was once in a situation like that myself. I found a piece ripped out of it. I was traveling through Spain. And in a small town in, in, in Malaga, <coughs> southern Spain, I found a piece of a Sefer Torah ripped out and on sale in an antique shop. <coughs> when I expressed interest, the fellow told me a price. I wanted to take it and bury it. And something struck a chord with me and I left it in the shop. And I went to talk it over with a local rabbi. who happened to be a very knowledgeable young man from Tunis. And he pointed out to me, that, of course he lives there, this happens quite frequently. He pointed out to me that since the price that was asked was at a very expensive price, it's forbidden. Because all he will do is send some, the young fellows who ripped that out to the same North African shore where they ripped that one out, and they will tear out more. Do you understand? And therefore, we had to leave it. So, that's not exclusionary. That's simply the wisdom, right? Of not, this, by the way, applies to a community. It doesn't apply to an individual. If your wife happens to be captured, then you're allowed to ransom. You're allowed to. I didn't say you're obliged to. But you're allowed to ransom her back. Actually, actually, the truth is... <laughs> 
the truth is I'm misleading you. I'm misleading you. The Gemara says that a man has to ransom his wife back. In fact, he's liable for her ransom money. Virtually under all circumstances, a husband. Right? It's one of the things he takes on. In fact, <coughs> the Gemara says, <coughs> one of the reasons that if a woman works, the salary goes to her husband. You know the Jewish law, the default position, if a woman works, her husband gets to use the salary. One of the reasons for that is since, on the other hand, since the counter, the counterposed issue is that he has to support her with an allowance to, be, to a certain extent. And by the way, the allowance is always on her terms, not his. Do you know that? The Gemara says, if a man is, if a man is wealthy, he has to give his wife at her level, at his level of wealth. If he becomes wealthier, he has to give her more. If he becomes poorer, he may not give her less. The expression in the Gemara, which is learned from the Torah, is she goes up with him, but not down with him. And one of the things he has to do is he has to ransom her when she's captured. So, on a personal basis, there's a different issue. But on a communal basis, that has got nothing to do with exclusion. That is because it's un- it may be unwise. Exclusionary means if they took the heart improperly, I should not use it now. We do not have an absolute ruling like that. So let's say a heart is about to be implanted. Let's ignore the fact that it was taken, how it was taken. And now, I wish to use the heart. So, yeah, they're going to open the recipient's chest, take out his heart, come along with a donor heart, and replace the recipient's heart. There'll be time during which the recipient will no longer have a heart. He will have an artificially maintained circulation, but he won't have a heart. This is also the case when an, um, an implantable pump, you know, uh, there's a very great hope, in the New England Journal actually a few weeks ago, was a review of the status of fully implantable um, heart um, pump devices, which are now very close to a reality, okay, at least for adults. And the hope is that soon there will be a fully implantable um, uh, self-contained unit that you can put in someone's chest, which will not require, of course, immunosuppression, a mechanical device. When you are taking out the heart, the native heart, and about to put the machine in, you have a similar situation. For that matter, during open-heart surgery, valvular surgery, various other types of surgical techniques, most of coronary bypass surgery today is done with the heart stopped. Yeah, you know, they stop the heart, and then while the heart is stopped and usually cooled, they will operate on the coronary arteries and then restart, or hope they will, restart the heart again afterwards. Um, during all these situations, if you think about it for a moment... You know, there's another technique of doing coronary artery surgery where you can actually operate on a beating heart. You need a quick pair of hands and a special machine called an octopus which actually stabilizes part of the, the heart surface. A very clever technique. Actually, a surgeon here in London to do it. But in the situation where the heart is stopped or more dramatically removed from the body, the question arises, <coughs> what is the state of the recipient? What's the state of a person for the moments during which his heart is not in his body? Well, there are two obvious options. Either he's dead and hopefully will be resurrected shortly. Or, he's hovering between life and death, and time will tell, the next few minutes will tell, if the operation is successful, whether he's alive or not. Can you see the complications of taking the, prim- the form of view? If you say that while the heart's out of the body, you know the Jewish law, the fact that the circulation is going may not be relevant. You know that. The definition of death, despite what we said last week, if an organ that l- sustains life is removed, okay, for example... If the heart's outside of the body, if the heart's outside the body, okay, despite the fact that the machine is keeping the circulation going, there is halachic room to say the person's dead. Why? Because by definition, you cannot live with a heart outside your body, almost by definition. This comes down to a fascinating argument. I, I just don't have time now to go into the details, which is a famous argument between Yunus and Ibishitz and the Chacham Tzvi. What happened was a lady opened a chicken and could not find a heart. There was a case, a woman. Yeah, she was preparing a chicken, she couldn't find a heart. She went to a rabbi to ask him, is the chicken kosher? 
didn't have a heart. A full-grown chicken without a heart. So it became a famous argument between two, these two great halachic authorities. One rule, the chicken's perfectly kosher. Why? Because it must have had a heart and it disappeared. The cat must have taken it while you were busy preparing the chicken. You didn't see it and it was removed. The fact that you didn't see it is irrelevant. The chicken could not have lived without a heart. The fact that you did not find it is definitely a mistake. The life of the chicken proves that it had a heart. The other authority said, absolutely not. If the lady was careful and she didn't see a heart, there's no proof. Maybe it lived some other way. Maybe it had some muscular tissue, an abnormal type of a heart somewhere that maintained circulation. I don't know what happened, but and this became a, a very, very monumental and famous debate. And mon- some of the issues that come out of it are very interesting. Yeah, because this, one of the issues here is, if it did not have a heart, then it couldn't have lived. You see, based on that concept, we could say that if the person, the donor, the recipient, has his heart out of his chest now, so then if you use that definition, he's not alive. <clears throat> he will be resuscitated, he'll be revived, <clears throat> we'll be witnessing resurrection of the dead in five minutes' time, but right now he's dead. The consequences are enormous. Let me share with you some of the consequences. One, if he's dead, <clears throat> is there a mitzvah to, re- to resuscitate someone? There's no categorical mitzvah to resuscitate the dead. If he's alive, but in danger of dying, you better save his life, because there's a very big mitzvah of saving the life of somebody who's dying, and certainly not letting him die. Number two, if he's dead, and you wish to resurrect him, if you're a Kohen, nothing doing. Sorry, get out of there. Because you're in the room with a dead body, and if you're a Kohen, forget about resurrection of the dead, leave. But if he's a dying person, or hovering in the balance, and you're a Kohen, you better stay and save his life. First of all, there's no problem staying because he's alive. Do you understand the problem? Thirdly, if you rule that when the heart's out the body, he dies, and then five minutes later he's being brought back to, he's being resurrected, what happens to his marital status? Let's say this man's married. What is his marital status during the five minutes that the heart's out of his chest and he's dead? Okay? First of all, his wife, yeah, just became a widow. Let's assume, for example, the lady chooses that moment to conduct an extramarital affair. Yeah, she's having some uh, <laughs> extramarital intimate affair during those moments. While, I mean, it's made a little insensitive of her, but, you know, the point is that the, halachic, the realistic halachic question that arises is, is that an adulterous relationship or not? If the man's dead, she's a married widow, I'd say. You know, she's not a... She's not a... Um, not committing adultery, that would mean that there would be no death sentence on the lady, or the, or the man involved. If, what? She's dead, she's a widow. She's a widow. She, two minutes ago, she became a widow. Okay? If, however, you say that the man's alive, and hopefully then she's a, that's adultery. Okay? Furthermore, even if the lady's not doing something strange, she's just sitting there worrying about her husband, he needs to remarry her afterwards. If you rule that he died, and she's a widow... Okay, what's the status of living with a woman who, like, was your own widow? You know, she might have to remarry her five minutes later. Whereas, if you rule that he's alive, then that's not the case. What about inheritance? What about inheritance? If he's dead for five minutes, he just wakes up penniless, right? Because in the moment that he died, everybody inherited, his will goes into effect, or if there's no will, Jewish, you know, halacha takes over, he's a penniless, he got to beg from his kids, you know, for a cup of coffee, because he's, whereas if you say, you see all the consequences. These are real issues, real issues. The consensus seems to be that we rule that even a person without a heart in his body or a person on cardiopulmonary bypass, we basically effectively rule. I'm not saying there's no room for discussion here, but the basic approach seems to be that the person is, is since he can be brought back, not yet defined as dead. Okay, even though he may have some very striking criteria 
of death. Nevertheless, this also, in a, in a, a certain way, applies to resuscitation. When someone dies and their heart stops, the general attitude is, can you see the same thing arises? Here's a person, they're walking around in the hospital, and suddenly they drop, their heart has stopped, and you rush over to start resuscitating them. During the moments that you begin the resuscitation effort, they may have all the criteria of death. If you manage to bring them back five minutes later or ten minutes later, what were they during the five minutes when there was no heartbeat at all? And you have the same problem that arises. The general consensus has been, we don't define death as cessation of cardiorespiratory function. We define it as irreversible cessation. Which means that even though the heart might not be beating for two or three minutes, if it could be reversed, then we say they're not yet dead. This could be also connected to one of the reasons that the Hebrew Kedisha do not touch a person after death for at least some minutes. In most communities, 15, 20 minutes, half an hour. Absolute minimum would be five minutes. That could be in some way related to this issue. And therefore, the general attitude we take is that during a resuscitation attempt, even if the diagnostic criteria of death are present, we don't fully apply those criteria until the situation becomes irreversible. From that point on, then we would say that the... the um, in terms of a brainstem death with a ventilator, there's also argument about whether he's already reached irreversible, irreversible stage. And there's an interesting debate about, not about so much taking organs, but a more realistic debate about whether you can switch off the ventilator at some point. Okay? There is possibly room to say that the ventilator can be switched off, although we try not to do that uh, to an extreme degree where possible. These are some of the issues that relate to Transplantation, both to the recipient, which applies obviously much of what we said to recipient receiving an organ from a living or from a non-living donor. This is some of the issues relating to the donor psychological issues, coercive issues, and um, these are some. There are many other peripheral issues, obviously, that go along with these, but these, I think, are some of the main ones in, in this kind of surgery. Are there any questions on anything that we raised? We discussed last week the problem of brain stem death as opposed to cardiac or cardiorespiratory, so I'm not going to go over that again. Any other? Right, okay, so this brings us to a close of this part of the series. There were one or two other medical ethical things that um, we sort of referred to and touched on, so perhaps next week I'll put those together, but meantime, um, we'll stop here. Thank you.